Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. How are you doing today? I love it. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, we're really glad that you are as we get into more of this series that we're gathering together as a whole community to think about, to celebrate, and to push into. It's a series where we talk about vision. What is our vision for a community of people that God has called together for a specific time? So if you have landed at South, that's part of what you are called to. I'm here. That's part of what I'm called to. And we get to bring our common talents, our common energy. The, the beautiful thing that I love about uh, this community is whenever we talk about things like giving, whenever we talk about things like serving, whenever we talk about things like groups, there are all of the resources we need in this room right now together. And that's not even taking into account the, the, all the other ways that South gathers throughout the week in homes, in, in the food bank, in Celebrate Recovery, and all of these great ministries that we get to call part of, of this South community. Andy Stanley says this, vision is about what could be and should be. It's imagining together a different world, saying if only things were like that. It, it sometimes is lonely and sometimes requires some change or some adventure uh, to start with from one or two people and then slowly pulling in more and more people. We went as a retreat, we went as elders on a retreat back in February and we went during that time for a walk. We adventured across Grand Lake up in Grand Lake, uh, when it was all frozen. We didn't walk on water. That's not doable for our group. But I took some pictures as, as we went, and you can see this nice curvaceous route we took the first time. It just, we kind of meandered and ended up somewhere over uh, on the other side, and it was hard going. And then coming back, I said, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and walk this route as straight as I can. I'm gonna lock into a target and say, this is, this is where we're going. And so you can see, like, the best I could do to make a dead, straight target target there. And then you could see all of the rest of the group that didn't come with me. They say, if you want to know you're a leader, turn around and see if anyone's following you. <laughs> and, and this was just them showing me, no, no, you don't lead this group. Like this is, you're just one of many. And so, so, so why? Like what's going on there? Well, well, I intentionally was trying to walk a very straight path thinking about what was going on. And yet it was harder to do that. The other way we got to just continue to walk the paths that we had walked before. And any time you try and do something new, well, it's going to look and feel a little different. And that's why we've taken this prayer as almost like a mantra that I'm going to invite us to pray again, a prayer by St. Francis Drake that goes like this. Are you ready? Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. What is going on there when we pray that? Well, it, well it's an invite, right? It's an invite in the moments where we attempted to be cynical and say we've tried these things as churches before, as, as individuals before to say, no, God, give me the courage to try that again. 
in the moments where we realize that it depends on frail human people to say, I'm, I'm gonna believe anyway that God, you empower those fa- frail human people to believe that God does extraordinary things with very ordinary people like you and I. So we talked last week about this three pathways that we came up with together last year. Yes, we live in the way of Jesus and the heart of Jesus, but we have these three things that are gonna help us do that, that tap into some of his principles. We get to create environments that feel like coming home, that when you walk through the door, you say, yes, it was like I was planned for and, and wanted here. One of our community who passed away a couple of years ago once said hospitality was giving the other person the impression that they made, that they made your day by being part of what you were offering. There's something wonderful that we can give in that idea of hospitality. And then this second one this week, that we wanna see experiences, and this is an experience. Small groups are an experience. Food bank is an experience. Celebrate recovery is an experience. Experiences that help people encounter Jesus and take next steps. So a couple of things going on there. One, every time you see Jesus encounter somebody in the New Testament, there's always a next step. Jesus never leaves people where they are. Now, now, there's there's a caveat to that. There's an important note on that. It's that he always begins, it seems, with belonging. Jesus is brilliant at this. Jesus is a master of hospitality. He rarely cooked for people. There's a couple of times it seems like he he even cooked himself. He made the bread on the beach, the fish, all those different things. But, But he was a master of hospitality. When you think of these three words, when you think of the idea of belonging, believing, and behaving, one of the things I would suggest that modern churches have done is, is said this, we want people to behave well. We want, them, we want to see them do the right stuff. And then if they do that, we'll, we'll accept that maybe they believe in Jesus. And then, then when they do those two things, well, then they get to belong. We, with Jesus, it's the other way around. Jesus offers belonging before he offers anything else. He welcomes people in and then you watch as, as this Jesus who invited them in, they, they start to believe in him and then, and then behavior might change. But with Jesus, hospitality seems like it always comes first. Welcome always comes first, but it's always repeatedly and beautifully followed by this idea of transformation. Jesus doesn't leave us the same, and that's where we get to land in today. So as usual, if you have questions about anything that's said, we would love to just delve deeper on them. That's what we did this past week, Aaron and I, on on the podcast. We took this idea of hospitality and we wrestled with how everything we do at South can be shaped by hospitality and by doing ministry as Jesus would do it. Last week I began with this. The earliest churches reflected Jesus' heart for hospitality. This week, I might say this as a starting point, as a starting thesis. The earliest churches harnessed Jesus' power for transformation. They harnessed Jesus' power for transformation. The earliest churches were made up of all sorts of people with all sorts of backgrounds, often not great backgrounds, And what we get to see repeatedly is those people become different. So so transformation is a whole subject. Doesn't that just, I think it grips us a little bit as humans. How many of you have a project going on in the house right now of some kind? How many would you say the house is a project right now? Like the the whole house is a project. Uh, How many of you would say you've just lived 
in that state of change and transformation for a long time. How many of you would say it's your spouse's fault that you've been in that place of transformation for a long time? There's this thing we do, right? We start a project and we're like, let's do another project now. This, this is fine, it's kicked off, it's, it's had a good start, and now we'll move across and we'll take up something. Because some of you that don't live like this, and it's super annoying to me. Some of you are like, we start a project and we finish it. That's just how life works, right? I'm like, no, no, not, not for some of us. I, I love just seeing how people get to transform things. When we were younger, my wife and I got to, be in, got to see uh, transformation in action. We, we got to house it, this incredible house in the middle of London. It had been an office block. Just, just a place that people went to work, and it was bought by Laura's boss, and he, he went around transforming this whole thing, changing everything. He put in this incredible floating limestone staircase that I think cost more than my house cost. He put in this beautiful wood library. I wrote my thesis on that couch that I think cost more than my house cost. There's all of these different touches that we got to see in this house that was just transformed in this beautiful way we say, don't we, when we walk into a house, someone's changed something, someone's transformed something. This is the phrase, oh, I love what you've done with the place. <laughs> Somewhere in there, there is, yes, celebration for the person, but a longing that maybe we had done the same thing or we had had the same house. Perhaps some of you have caught hold of this trend on social media. There's this guy that creates these videos where he just goes and drops into people's houses and he begins a process of transformation and just feel how satisfying this is. Just advertising for this guy now, like, yeah, subscribe. He has like 1.5 million dollar, like 1.5 million viewers. There's, there's some satisfaction that goes on when we see people slowly pulling life out of what wants us. And how many times did he say something that might tap in with how we feel about our faith? Perhaps how we feel about inviting people to come to experience transformation through Jesus. Oh, I knocked like four or five times. It just took a lot of work to pull back. There were all these hidden things, and yet it was so satisfying. At the end, he taps into some of perhaps our own longing for transformation, and then perhaps what we hope to see in the lives of people around us. This isn't just a buildings thing. This is more than that. I, I found this quote uh, on Twitter that just intrigued me. I was out with a bunch of people this weekend, and this guy suddenly went, man, I miss my wife and went home. Like, I want that. Sometimes we see something about life and we say, I want to live like this person lives. And yet, as I said earlier, there's this tension that sometimes transformation seems, perhaps we'd call it stalled. About a year ago, I showed you a project I was working on at home. I've been working on this shed. And so I took a picture this morning to show you what it looks like now. just hasn't changed. It's the same place, the same thing. There hasn't been the movement that I hoped there would be. There certainly hasn't been the movement that my wife hoped there would be was still there. Transformation is this interesting thing, and yet the earliest churches harness Jesus' power for transformation. When we talk about experiences that lead people to encounter Jesus and to take next steps, we're talking about transformation. So, so how do we unpack that a little further? And we're gonna do that in the lives of three blind guys 
guys in Scripture who also all, all appear in different ways. So if you have a text in front of you and you want to turn to John chapter 9, here we go. As he went along, the he is Jesus, uh, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. A couple of things going on there. In this world, it was considered harder to heal someone that had been born blind than someone who had become blind. Just like it was considered easier to heal someone who had been become lame than it was to heal someone who had been born lame. There was something about being born in that state that said to people, no, this isn't changing. This is here for good. And, and then he kind of throws in this, this kind of unspoken philosophical conversation going on behind the scenes in the ancient Near East a couple of thousand years ago, which is really whose fault is this? It's got to be someone's fault. Perhaps it's his fault. Perhaps it's his parents' fault. But, but who, who can we blame? I would suggest we actually still do that a little bit today. We, we do it specifically in the area of mental illness, which I, I would say is, is maybe the one sickness where we still blame the person who is sick for being sick. This is a conversation going on there. Both Greeks and Jews believed that, that God, or the gods, depending on which group we're talking about, might punish a parent for doing something wrong by giving them a disabled child. This was an ever-present conversation or thought. So they're just voicing uh, the opinion of lots of people in that time. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born in this state, that he'd be where he is now? Who's to blame? And Jesus answers, answered in a new way, opens up a whole new philosophical area of thought. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work while I am in the world. I am the light of the world. Jesus says it's no one's fault, but in this bad situation, the glory of God is about to be shown. Something incredible is about to happen. The, qu the question is, what's the incredible thing that's about to happen? Because it's kinda, I would say, kinda hidden in the text. The, the, there's a surface reading that we find here. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. To us, probably a very weird way to go about doing a healing. Our, our response is, could you not just have laid a hand gently on his shoulder and prayed for him in that way? That's, that's how we do it now. Um, but no, there's a whole recreation thing going on here that we really don't have time to, to, to get to, and, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sense. So on the surface, that seems like Jesus is just in engaging in some really weird word play. He's like, what pool can I send him to to wash? I'm gonna send him to the one that's called scent. But there's actually more to it than that. Just a couple of days, Jesus has stood by this same pool where a water festival is being held and said, uh, whoever is thirsty, let them come to me and streams of living water will flow from within them. He's sending this guy back to the same pool where that big speech took place. Something's gonna happen that's more, I would suggest, than just sight. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. 
His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him, but he himself insisted, I am the man. This dialogue is just wonderful. It's like the transformation is so great, he doesn't even, they don't recognize him, or at least they're not sure that they do, but it's just a just beautiful reflection of humanity in this verse right here. Uh, how then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it in my eyes. Leaves out the spit part. Maybe that was just a little too much. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. This is a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story of one man in the first century who physically receives healing. The question that we always have to ask is, is that what we are supposed to learn from the text as 21st century followers of Jesus? And I would say yes, and then also something else. Yes, the beautiful truth is today, God still heals people and we should want that, expect that, and pray for that. But then, something else too. Where is this man, they asked him, where is Jesus? I don't No, he said, we are presented on the surface with a story about divine healing that is a good story. It's a story that we should celebrate. But as I say, there's something else. And so let's move to the story of a second blind man and just see what this unpacks. Flick over if you've got a text in front of you to Mark chapter eight. This time they're in Bethsaida. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, this time it's into the man's eyes, it's it's even more, uh, and put his hands on him. Jesus asked, do you see anything? What happens? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. If you've got cataracts, that's what I look like uh, on stage right now. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him alone saying, don't even go into the village. Sent him home, sorry, saying don't even go into the village. How many of you, perhaps you've been following Jesus for a while, would say, I've always wondered what is going on with this text. It's a little bit mysterious, right? It's like, was Jesus just bad at healing the first time? Did he not do it right? Was there something that was supposed to take away? Maybe some, some idea that was supposed to keep praying. This never happens in other times where Jesus prays for people. What's going on behind the scenes here? And, and perhaps here what you might take away is that this is why it's always just really valuable to read scripture slowly and in the context it lands in. Because there is something important going on here. There's a teaching point that we miss if this is all we read. Because what happens before this and what happens after this are really important in terms of what's happening right now in the midst of the story. The, the pericope or moment before this is a moment where Jesus asks his disciples if they can see. Not physically, but spiritually. He, he's kind of asking them about the Pharisees, the other religious leaders in the, in the time, and he says, do you guys really see or are you blind as well? Are you blind like the other religious leaders have been shown to be blind? Or can you only kind of see? He's wrestling with the disciples' spiritual sight, with their understanding of everything that is going on. And then we land in a story where Jesus gradually heals a physically blind man. 
He prays for him once, and he kind of sees. Prays for him again, and he really sees. And then in the story afterwards, we have this incredible moment where Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Finally, he sees Jesus for who he really is. His eyes are really open spiritually. Mark takes a story where the disciples are kind of figuring it out, and a story where they've really figured it out. And in the middle, he tells a story about a blind man who was prayed for once and kind of sees, prayed for again, and really sees. Does it mean that the blind man wasn't healed? Does it mean that it didn't happen as it is in the story? Absolutely not. It means that it it did happen like it is in the story. But this writer, Mark, loves to take multiple stories. Theologically, it's known as a Mark and sandwich, which sounds really appetizing, right? He, He takes stories and he puts them together so we learn something. Yes, there's a man who's physically unable to see and now gets to see, and that is a joy. But there's also this teaching idea that that actually sometimes it takes a while for your eyes to be opened spiritually. Transformation is not always instant. Sometimes it takes a little while. Years ago, the Reformed Church took this as a mantra, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda, the church reformed, always reforming, the idea that this church was a growing, developing thing. You might say that it's always been true about us as individuals. When we choose to follow Jesus, you might say we are the Christian transformed, always transforming. The day you chose to follow Jesus, this beautiful truth happens. You become a different person. You are moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And yet slowly, by degrees, by time, hopefully you've come to see Jesus more clearly. You've come to act more like him in this world that we're left in. Slowly you've experienced transformation. This is the heartbeat of this story. And when we miss it, we miss really Mark's whole point. And I would suggest when we go back to John, we potentially miss it with John too. Look what happens in the continuation of the first story we started in. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. This, this is an old conversation, which is actually kind of funny if you like this kind of humor. If you thought religious pettiness was just a modern invention, it actually goes back a long way. Uh, amongst Pharisees, there was a debate Is it okay to make a salve to put on people's eyes to make them feel better? And one rabbi said yes, and another rabbi said no. When the rabbi that said no had problems with his eyes on a Sabbath, he went to the rabbi that said yes and said, can you make some salve for me to put on my eyes? And the rabbi that said yes said no, it's okay for everybody else, but it's not okay for you. That's how petty religion has able to be over the years. This kind of pettiness is not a new thing at all. This is a real debate going on with Pharisees in the first century that we get to see 
in text form. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you got to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. He sees Jesus, kind of. Sees Jesus, kind of. The text continues. They still did not believe that he'd been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. This is like almost like a comic sketch that they've got going on here. They call his parents in. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he now can see? The parents get to reply. We know he is our son, the parents answered. We know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. It's like buck passing like no other. It's like we're not getting involved in this. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said he's of age, ask him. A second time they summon the man, they bring him forward again, who had been blind, give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. We know it can't have happened how you said, because Jesus is bad. He doesn't follow the right rules. He isn't part of our group. It can't be the way that you say it is, so tell the truth. And he replies with just this eternally great reply. Whether he is a sinner or not, I know, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And that's where John Newton gets his incredibly famous line. Oh, just kind of disappeared on me there. I once was blind, but now I see that we just sang in amazing grace. He just says, no, this is how it is. This is all I know uh, what to tell you. Then they asked, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? These guys, they won't let this go. He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? If there was anything that was gonna get to these guys, they can feel this now, this is like brutal. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciples, we are disciples of Moses, we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? and they threw him out. There's a cast of characters that were given and introduced to. One is Jesus who does the healing. The, the other is an uneducated, unreligious man who is willing to see Jesus for who he is. And the other group is a group of religious leaders who in spite of all the evidence are determined they will not see Jesus for who he is. They are determined to keep their eyes closed. It's not that they can't see. Simply it's that they don't want to see. And then we conclude with this final moment where just like in Mark, this man's eyes are fully opened. When, she, oh sorry, next slide, there we go. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. He went and found him and said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir, the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believed, and he worshiped him. And just like in Mark, the main point isn't that a man who was physically blind got to see. 
the main point is that a man that was spiritually blind got to see. Jesus' main interest always is transformation, always that people would see him for who he is. Physical sight, yes, important, valuable. Is it wonderful? And does Jesus seem to love bringing sight to a man born blind? He does, he seems to do it with joy. But the reality is it seems that his main goal has always been that people might be transformed spiritually, that you and I might get to see him for who he really is. The religious leaders, their, their problem with that, that is really that, that they're becoming more and more unlike the people that they were supposed to be. And that is the tension in the passage. The poet Dean Jackson shares a story about a person transformed, uh, sorry, a caterpillar transformed into a butterfly. And he says this, when she transformed into a butterfly, the caterpillar spoke not of her beauty, but of her weirdness. They wanted her to change back into what she had always been but she had wings. There's a transformation that takes place in this story, and the religious leaders just can't get over that the transformation doesn't quite fit the way they think transformation should work. Can't get over the fact that the transformation seemed to begin with the wrong person. And perhaps I'd suggest, is that not you and I sometimes? Sometimes we want transformation to happen in particular ways. We want people to experience Jesus and we want him to transform the things that we think are top of the list of things that should change. And yet this beautiful Jesus seems uninterested in our expectations. Perhaps you felt some of that tension in that moment we watched the video of the guy transforming the person's lawn. Is there a moment perhaps where you look at a guy who seems physically able and you start to look at him and say, seems like he could do his own lawn. Seems like transformation could happen on our terms and our expectations. And yet Jesus seems very uninterested often in our particular expectations of how transformation should happen. The Pharisees, uh, all they can see is some transformation that wasn't as it should have been. We are presented, I would suggest, with a story of divine healing. And we're actually given a lesson on spiritual transformation. We're actually getting a lesson on spiritual transformation. That story is supposed to speak to you and I about this, this beautiful relationship with Jesus where we're invited to constantly and gradually grow like him. But, but perhaps at times you feel like me. You say, I feel like that happened to begin with. And now I wonder if, if it's working as it should. I, I've seen ways that I've become like Jesus. I've had these moments of transformation. I had this moment maybe six months after starting to follow Jesus where I suddenly thought about the language I used. I was like, it just changed. I didn't try to change it. Didn't do anything intentional. It was just different. And I'm now 25 years removed from that. And say so there's ways that I feel like I haven't changed and think I should have. There's ways I respond to people and think, if only I could take that one back. There could have been a different reaction there. There could have been a different attitude there. I think perhaps maybe the most frustrating thing I find about Jesus' promise of transformation is the ways where I feel it's got way off track or at least hasn't landed where I wanted it to land. And so to help us deal with that a little, I'd love us to switch metaphor just a bit. Because I think so far we've talked about transformation like around the subject of projects, of how we do things around the house. And I don't know that that's always helpful. 
Because I don't think Jesus sees you and I as projects. For a moment, I want to talk instead about journeys. Uh, A while back, I was supposed to go to a camp in England. I was living over there at the time, and and I was supposed to follow this route that went down here. You can see it, and it progressed all the way over to the corner of Wales. Are there any Welsh people here? There are, darn it. I was going to make a joke about Wales, but I won't. (laughs) What have Wales and England got to do with each other? That's all I'll say. Instead of taking this journey down here, I just autopiloted. I just got on the wrong highway. I just ended up taking this route down here, which is just a very different direction to the one that I wanted to go in. And and if you've ever had that moment, perhaps you've experienced the deep frustration that comes with that. What I knew in the moment where I realized my mistake is I knew I was going to be angry with myself and the situation in life in general until I got back on track. Uh, the, 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 the journey back to the other red line was just not going to be pretty. Unfortunately, if you know anything about the geography of England, there aren't a lot of roads that lead you across this gap. Most of the ones that do look something like this. Uh, th- this system of road is, is perhaps unique to England. Th- these are country lanes. You're allowed to drive down most of these at about 60 miles an hour. Uh, at any point during that journey, you might meet a tractor or sheep, or people coming in the opposite direction, and there's only enough room for one car. And so, so when we first moved to England, when my wife at 19 moved over to England, we took videos of us driving down these country lanes and sent them to her parents. I honestly think, for the first couple of years we were married, uh, that my wife's parents thought the way she was most likely to die in England was country lanes. Whereas my parents thought it was, I was going to get shot when I moved to America. I think there's just an interesting narrative in play there. How we see the other nation, I don't know. Um, but this journey was one of deep frustration, deep anger, deep resentment with the way that I'd gotten it wrong, deep resentment with just, just really life in general until I got back on track. And perhaps that speaks to the way we see ourselves when life isn't as it should be in our way of thinking right now. There's just something, we just feel like I took a wrong turn somewhere. How did I end up here? How did this become the status quo? Why would this happen to me? All sorts of questions that float in those moments, all sorts of frustrations, all sorts of longings, all sorts of needs in those moments. How did we get here? And if we see ourselves simply as a project, then our question, our our response is likely to say this, well, there's always been something wrong with me. The problem is me. I'm just too broken. Even God can't transform me. And perhaps you've sat in those moments. You've responded to a spouse that way again. You've responded to your kids that way again. You've responded to your parents, to your friends that way again. Perhaps you've experienced those moments that you might call anti-transformation, where you might say, if anything, it feels like we're going backwards, and it doesn't feel good. When you're a project, the temptation is to simply say, do you know what, there's something wrong with a project, and it's just never going to be what it could be. But you are more than a project, and I would suggest Jesus doesn't see you as a project. The beautiful invite of Jesus is that we are a story that is being written. 
We are a journey that has been taken. And in any moment on that journey, what's the one simple principle that you get to lean into? Wherever you are, whatever it looks like, simply keep moving towards the destination. Keep moving in the direction that you're supposed to go, whatever that looks like in this moment. I would suggest that Jesus is the destination. In those moments of anti-transformation, in those moments where you feel like everything is broken, the call is simply move towards him. Now here's what's beautiful and incredible about this Jesus that we get to follow. Not only is he the destination, the thing we move towards, but he is on the journey with you. You don't make this journey alone. He partners with you wherever you are, on country lanes that you feel like you shouldn't be on, in the moments where you took the wrong highway, in the moments where everything feels like it's falling apart and you're angry with yourself, the world, and everyone around you. This Jesus sits with you, journeys with you, and is also the destination, the direction you are going. So it leaves us with this question. In this moment you might be sitting in, how do we, how do I, how do you, how do we move towards Jesus? And that's where we need our third blind man for just a moment. Mark chapter 10, and then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's a prayer that's just become etched in church history. It's prayer at its most simple level. It simply is a cry out to the God of the universe. Jesus, have mercy on me. In all of my lostness, in all of my brokenness, just draw me closer to you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. There's something that I love about Bartimaeus, a little tweak on him that just fascinates me because he cries out to see physically. What it seems with Bartimaeus, though, is that he could always see spiritually. Before his physical sight is restored, he sees Jesus for who he is, and that's why he cries in his direction. The writer Andrew McLaren said this, faith is the sight of the inward eye. It's not a physical thing. It's always been something more than that. It's always been something more than that. One of the questions, one of the ways that I keep moving towards Jesus, as well as simple cries like the cry of Bartimaeus, is in those moments where I just am not who I want to be. I ask these two questions that might help you too. When I respond in a way that's unhealthy, when I am someone who's unhealthy, I start with these questions. What unredeemed part of me is being revealed? And then, beautiful Jesus, who has saved me so many times and rescued me so many times, what part of me are you wanting to transform in this moment? You are on a journey, and it won't always look like it's supposed to look. And when it doesn't, what you get to ask is this, what are you revealing about me? And how are you wanting me to transform? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are present with us. Present with us on the journey. 
that what you do is you pull people in in this beautiful hospitality, this spirit and this heart that welcomes in people who are messy, that feel broken, that feel like the journey has gone way off track. And you say to us, you belong. You belong. You are mine. Nothing can take you out of my hand. And so for each of us, wherever we are, perhaps we've not even started that journey with you. And in this moment, we get to make that our prayer. We get to say, Jesus, I want to join you on life's journey. And know that it hasn't looked how I want it to look. Would you forgive me and journey with me? For those of us that just feel like we got, we're just way off track, would you remind us of your presence with us? Help us to keep moving towards you. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. Aaron is going to lead us in a song. And if you would like someone to pray with you during that song, you're free to come up to the front and there's people that would love to pray with you. If you want to wait till after the service, that's okay too. But let's stand together. And let's just together turn our eyes back towards Jesus in amongst all the distractions and all the stuff. Jesus, thank you that you have waited. Waited as I've talked. Would you take whatever's yours and seal it in our minds and our hearts? Thank you that you love us and are for us. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.